changes. What's the Word? Brought to you by Columbia Baptist Church in Columbia, Kentucky on 101.9 WAIN. I am Randy Johnson, the senior pastor at Columbia Baptist Church, and thank you for joining us every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock right here on 101.9 WAIN. Good evening. Welcome to What's the Word. It is another Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock. Maybe you're dialed in to 101.9 WAIN. Maybe you are on 1270 AM. Or maybe you are streaming from WAIN's website. Or maybe using the WAIN app. You can do that on your phone, smart device, computer, whatever it is that you have. You can use that. So there are multiple ways to catch this program and everything that WAIN does. But I am Randy Johnson, Senior Pastor at Columbia Baptist Church, also an adjunct professor at Lindsey Wilson College, also a Ph.D. student, and busier than I should be. But you know what? I always look forward to having time for this show on Wednesday night. And it's just one of the joys in my life that I really look forward to and hope that it's beneficial to you and your walk with Christ. On this show, and I mention this from time to time, but the goal is to mention real life, actual things that are going on in and around the world and in and around your world and show you through the lens of Scripture How should Christians behave when it comes to these events or these happenings or these stories or whatever it is that's going on? You know, what is the right response that would glorify Christ? And so I've got several things to cover uh, this evening that I'm looking forward to getting into. But I do want to say that if by any chance that you miss part or most or even a fraction of this show, you can catch this episode on my podcast tomorrow morning. The name of the podcast is called Walk This Way. This show is called What's the Word? So lots of W's in the names of my radio show and podcast. But Walk This Way is found on anchor.fm slash Walk This Way. You can find it online, all the past episodes of this show. You can search on any podcast app that you use or, you know, any way that you listen to podcasts like Spotify, Apple, Google, all of those carry Walk This Way. So I'm thankful for that. So you can catch that as well. If you miss any of this show or maybe you want to hear some past episodes, uh, just kind of see what some of the other content is that I've put out there. I've done all kinds of stories, and I remember a couple of years ago, I did a, uh, a list of Halloween candy, you know, the, the best kinds or the top rated. And I think, as far as I can remember, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup is always at or at least near the top. And there's just something about the chocolate peanut butter combination that really just lights people's fire. And Reese's has obviously done very well with the Reese's peanut butter cup, but that almost always goes to the top of the list. Uh, In fact, I saw a, a little video the other day that said that showed how somebody had transformed their ice maker in their refrigerator to instead of dispensing ice, ice, ices, listen to me, instead of dispensing ice cubes, it dispensed miniature Reese's. And so just like you, you know, put your cup underneath to get ice, they put your cup or your hands underneath and out would pour miniature Reese's peanut butter cups. You can't make this stuff up, folks. Some people are just obsessed with all kinds of weird things. But anyway, this time of the year, it's early November, starting to get cool, starting to get dark early. It's uh, dark earlier in the evening. It's dark most likely when many of you wake up. 
depending on what time you wake up. But, you know, even close to seven, it's still, it's still darker outside than it used to be. And then certainly before 7 p.m., it's getting dark or, or completely dark again. But we have time change this weekend, so we get to fall back. So don't forget that. So that means you'll get a whole extra hour Saturday night to sleep, so nobody should have an excuse to be late for church. So there's that. One of those weekends, probably one of the weekends I look forward to the most because I usually don't sleep well on Saturday night. I look, I'm too geared up for Sunday morning to preach and to teach and to see people and catch up and see people face to face that, you know, either I don't get to see throughout the week or haven't seen for, for a week or more. And I look forward to seeing people and just, you know, just being energetic and, and, you know, preaching and worshiping. And I usually don't sleep well on Saturday. So knowing this Saturday that I'm going to get a whole extra hour of sleep is a very exciting thing for me. I can tell you too share in my excitement for me. Thank you for that. I don't know how I know that. I can just tell through the radio waves. I can sense that you too are excited for me. Anyway. So I've got a couple things that are, you know, going on in the world. And I, I saw a story just the other day, uh, of course, the Atlanta Braves, you know, in the, uh, in the playoffs in the world series, uh, I saw the story that kind of came out early on in the world series, you know, just a couple of games had, had gone on and the name of the article as usually article titles do, grab my attention. The, you know, and, and that's one of those keys in journalism that your opening paragraph and certainly the name or the title of the article has to be catchy, has to be something that will grab you. Well, we live in a culture now where this kind of title is going to grab my attention Maybe not in the same way that it would have 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I would have seen this as unfortunate. I would have read this title of this article and thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Now, and, and in this modern culture in which we live, and you know, in 2021, almost 2022, I read the title of this article and I slightly roll my eyes a little bit. I understand, but I also know that it represents something bigger. Here's the title of the article. Tomahawk Chop, that's in quotes, under scrutiny as Atlanta Braves compete in the World Series. So just to back up a little bit, the Atlanta Braves for many, many years, you know, they were called America's team. Uh, in baseball anyway, primarily because all of their games just about were on television. Uh, on TBS, Ted Turner uh, bought CNN and started TBS, TNT, all of those, and put the Atlanta Braves on television religiously. And people started watching the Braves and pulling for them and knowing who was on their team probably better than the New York Yankees. Not to say that more people followed the Braves than a team like the Yankees or Dodgers or something like that in these huge market, uh, you know, huge markets. Certainly Atlanta itself is a large market, but that really helped to get them kind of on the map. Well, winning helps too. And in the late 80s, early 90s, there, there seemed to be a turn, and no pun intended, seemed to be a turn with the Atlanta Braves, and they started winning. They started winning pennants. They, started, they won a couple of championships, world championships. And before you knew it, the Atlanta Braves were a successful baseball team. Now they've had a couple of dips here and there, but they you know, find themselves, found themselves back in the World Series when this article was written. Well, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, what's been known as the Tomahawk Chop has been part of the Atlanta Braves. 
I mean, obviously going back or the more, you know, a notable part of the Atlanta Braves, you know, going back, I don't know when it started, but it was done during the game, is done during the game, and it's sort of a chant. I know Florida State, the Seminoles, uh, that college football team, and probably the basketball team and probably the baseball team and whoever else does it too. But they, over the loudspeaker, they have a large uh, Native American-type chant, like a a war-type chant, and everybody kind of swings their their, uh, forearm and, and arm forward like they're doing a chop. And it's to represent a you know, an Indian chop, a Native American chop. And this tomahawk chop, which, you know, again, is the same movement you would do or a Native American would do if they were holding a tomahawk, is that same motion with the elbow, with the forearm and the hand coming forward. You've probably seen it. I'm over-explaining it for the three people out there that don't know what I'm talking about. But it's their way to cheer on their team. I mean, it has just become a cheer, and it's something that every Braves fan, I'm sure, has done from one time or another. And, you know, people wear Braves gear. They're holding foam tomahawks in their hand, you know, and it's, it's just the whole thing, you know. However, the culture in which we live has caused something that has been done for I can say I can say at least decades. But of course, the Atlanta Braves or the Braves uh, organization has been around for many many years, and much much further back, most likely than when they were doing this tomahawk chop or when that first started, just like Florida State Seminoles. And in a lot of ways, and and I get the name and and. You know, I get the the difference between the name Indian or saying something like Seminoles or Cherokee or Iroquois, you know, just naming the actual, uh, you know, type of Native American tribe. I get that. And I get the difference between maybe the stereotype of the name Indian uh, referring to people who were here whenever Columbus and the others came over and quote-unquote discovered the Americas. Well, there were already people living here. Well, as different groups, you know, began to form different baseball teams and football teams and all of this kind of thing, you know, as that has come about and become a thing, then sometimes they choose some Native American tribes or some Native American references for, you know, their team mascot. And then part of that, I know the Illinois Fighting Illini, uh, they had a Native American that came out and, uh, at you know, at the beginning of the football game and was riding a horse and had a spear and the tip of it was on fire and he'd throw it down in the field and everybody would, you know, and they were very interested and very careful to be supportive and socially sensitive and accurate to those who were Native American. And and like I said, you know, sensitive to those who uh, either as Native American, you know, can certainly say, Hey, you know, this is, this this is our people. This is our way of life. This is not just something that we, you know, want to chant and, and offend. This is something that we want. If we're going to do this, we're going to actually honor those that this refers to. So it had been my assumption and maybe assumption is the wrong word, but it had been my assumption that the Atlanta Braves perhaps like some other organizations, use the logo of the Braves with the face of a Native American, including the tomahawk chop that they do in 
their stadium at different times when they're trying to rally, you know, the fans and get them excited and all of that as a way of not making fun or not as a way of stereotyping, but, you know, in a sense of calling attention to their mascot. Well, there have been more talks lately that perhaps the Tomahawk Chop, as it's associated with the Atlanta Braves, should no longer happen. It is said, and I quote, that in our discussions with the Atlanta Braves, we have repeatedly and unequivocally made our position clear. Native people are not mascots, and degrading rituals like the tomahawk chop that dehumanize and harm us have no place in American society. That is from NCAI President Fawn Sharp. The NCAI is the National Congress of American Indians. It's interesting that they have the name Indians in their name of their organization. That's, that's interesting to me, but... It's the oldest and largest American Indian and Alaska Native tribal government organization. So this was a statement that they made last week. Uh, this is while Atlanta was in the playoffs and advancing toward you know the World Series. I assume they thought that was a great time to bring that up. You know, while they're on television, lots of people are seeing them. Lots of fans in the stadium doing the tomahawk chop. And, you know, it's been said by many that this is degrading, that this is a racist, stereotypical movement and reminder of stereotyping and kind of pigeonhole an idea or, a, you know, a, a movement. I keep saying a movement because I'm talking about the actual chop but that that is racist and degrading now look some of you may be rolling your eyes at this others of you may get furious by this others of you may think this is a comical story i'm bringing this up only because of the culture in which we live and in fact and i just found this in 1985 the atlanta braves dropped their official mascot, the name of a, their mascot was Chief Nakahama, who was the original team mascot, and that was a term that was used to describe a Native American warrior. Now, I am not Native American, and I don't quite know, although I can imagine how they would see this as racist, how they would see this as degrading, and how they would see this as stereotypical. Certainly because as you meet Native Americans today, as you, you know, understand their, you know, them living on a reservation or, you know, whatever it is, you can understand they don't walk around doing that and carrying tomahawks and that kind of thing. But, you know, like a lot of things, I see it as a, as a throwback to the past and as a, as a memory of what Native Americans used to do and how, you know, they went to war and the, these types of things. But there is discussion that this should stop. Now, I'm thankfully, for your sake, not going to come down on one side or the other of this issue. Uh, because I don't think it's necessary. But here's what I do think. What I think is, and, and this has taken place for quite some time, but it's really ramped up in the last couple of years, something that has been called cancel culture. And cancel culture does something that really is a snowball going down the hill that is impossible to stop. And I'll give you an example before I explain what I mean by cancel culture. So, for example, in my home state of Louisiana, there were some statues in the New Orleans area of some Confederate generals. And of course, down in the south, that's where the Confederate soldiers were. Union was north, Confederate was south. 
And just like in a lot of places, there's pride in who your ancestors were. Well, cancel culture said we can't have any reference to Confederate soldiers because they were fighting to keep slavery and they were fighting for, you know, that way of life. And so it was seen as any of these statues, any of these memories were a direct representation of all things that were bad about fighting for slavery. And so cancel, that's an example But cancel culture has grown so far beyond that. And what cancel culture is, is essentially saying that if you say the wrong thing, if you offend, you're going to be canceled. Your television show might be canceled. Your movie career might be canceled. Interest in your career might be canceled or your job, whatever it may be, may be canceled. And there are numerous examples of this. I don't even have time to get into all of these. But when I read this story, the first thought that went through my mind is not the ability to preserve Native American history. But I read this article thinking this is another example of what we call cancel culture. That is, we find something that we believe offends, and we do away with it. Now, in this case, as far as being a Native American, I think they should have the loudest voice. And if they believe that this act and this movement done by Atlanta Braves fans is offensive to them, then I think their opinion should be heard far beyond my opinion. But cancel culture doesn't just stop at how things might offend Native Americans. We now have gotten to the place where we are afraid to speak truth because it might offend And this, I'm telling you, is a slippery slope. Whenever it comes through somebody's mind that I can't say this because it might offend this person, certainly there are scores of things, millions of things that you shouldn't say because they are offensive in terms of how you talk about somebody's family, how you talk about their life, how you, you know, talk about their weight, their age, their skin color, their, you know, what their income level, whatever is associated with a person that you could say something mean, hurtful and ugly that would offend them, of course that should not be said. But why isn't the line drawn with hurtful things, with slanderous things, with malicious things, why is the line drawn and incorporated in cancel culture is truth? I'll give you an example. People are afraid to talk about, in our culture, transgender movement, homosexuality, and these types of moral decisions. Now listen, if a tomahawk chop is offensive to a Native American and they believe that it shouldn't be done, then I say it shouldn't be done. If judging somebody by the color of their skin is offensive, which it is, it is, we call it racism, but it's really discrimination, bigotry, all of those things. It's hurtful. You are making a judgment about someone based on something out of their control. That is wrong. But when we get into moral issues, what one side of the issue wants to say is, well, you can't talk about homosexuality or transgender because I didn't choose this. I was born this way. 
And here is where cancel culture is going to have a serious problem with the church. And the problem exists when truth is spoken, there are words that are said that are biblical, that are thousands of years old, that were true when they were spoken, that are still true today. But because of the culturally sensitive world in which we live, there are lines being drawn to say, you can't talk about that. You can't say that's going to offend somebody. I read an article the other day from an African-American man who said, you know, if you look at commercials these days, he said most of the commercials feature biracial couples, African-American man, white woman, white man, African-American female. I've seen plenty of them. He said, that's like 12% of the American population are biracial couples. What he said was 88%, and, I, and I'm not totally sure, but it was, it was better than 80-20, so I'm saying 88-12, to 12, but it was somewhere in that ballpark that he gave this figure, and I could be corrected. But he was saying if 88% of couples, whether they're African-American or all white, are watching these commercials, he said, shouldn't the commercials reflect what actually exists in America? And if most African-American men or women are in a relationship with another African-American, and the same is true of white in a relationship with with a, a, a white spouse or a white person, shouldn't that be what we see in commercials? That was his point. And yet, when you watch commercials, if it features family and if it features relationships, you're going to see images flash by you of homosexual couples, biracial couples. You're going to see, uh, you know, all of these different... And I, you know, I'm not speaking against biracial couples. I'm saying this is what this guy was writing about. What you're going to see in commercials is, well, we're trying not to offend. And so we're putting these portions of society in our commercials. But here's what they're doing. They are maximizing a minor. They are making a big deal out of something that percentage-wise is very small. Homosexuality across the United States is a ridiculously small number of people that are that have, you know, call themselves and, and practice homosexuality. And yet it's all over everything. It's all it's everywhere. And so when I read this story about the tomahawk chop, that's the first thing that came through my mind was cancel culture. You know, for, for, for years, for decades, we're saying this. Now all of a sudden we're saying something different. Now I don't have an issue if it's an ethical, if it's a, you know, if it's an ethical issue or if it's a, an offensive issue. You know, when it's a moral issue, which the tomahawk chop is not. But if it becomes a moral issue, such as something like homosexuality, then cancel culture needs to back off and move away. Because there's a difference between canceling something because it offends my opinion versus canceling something because it goes against truth. And if something is true, then it's always true. And if something is a sin, then it's always a sin. And cancel culture can't touch the stuff that is not based on opinion, is all I'm saying. I just found it to be a very interesting article. So that's my two cents on cancel culture. Now, another interesting article that I came across, and this one was found in the Atlantic. Again... Well, and I shouldn't say again, this article, the, the title of this article didn't grab me quite as much as the other one did. I mean, the other one clearly uh, got my attention because, again, I, I thought of the notion of cancel culture. 
But this article uh, I found fascinating because it talked about parenting and happiness. Now, here's the title of the article. It says, What Becoming a Parent Really Does to Your Happiness. Well, my ears perked up. My eyes danced a little bit, and I thought, well, that sounds interesting. What does becoming a parent do to your happiness? Now, I am a parent of three children, a grandfather of one, and I think I pretty well know what happiness comes from or what having children does to my happiness. I, I, I don't know that I'm an expert in that field, but I'm, I've got some experience. And my experience says that I love my children and I'm thankful for them and I'm glad they're in my life. This article says in their opening paragraph, research has found that having children is terrible for quality of life. But the truth about what parenthood means for happiness is a lot more complicated. It goes on to describe a study. Now, it is one study that's done by a psychologist named Daniel Kahneman. And Daniel and his colleagues asked about 900 employed women to report at the end of the day every one of their activities and how happy they were when they did them. And they were called being with their children as the one activity that was less enjoyable than many other activities like watching TV, shopping, or preparing food. Other studies said that one, when a child is born, parents experience a decrease in happiness that does not go away for a long time, and there is a drop in marital satisfaction that doesn't usually recover until the children leave the house. Wow. Boy, there's a lot to say about that. So here's what I want to say about these 900 women who were interviewed or were asked to rate the enjoyment that they find in their evening activities once they leave work. And of all of the things that they mentioned, spending time with their children was less enjoyable than watching TV, shopping, or even preparing food. And I wonder why that is. I say that very sarcastically. I know why that is. You see, whenever we spend time with someone, chances are we think, I'm spending time with you because this benefits me. I'm with somebody that I love, I'm doing something, I'm going on a date, I'm going to the park, I'm, you know, going to this movie, whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm spending time with someone because that time is valuable to me. They said preparing food is more enjoyable than spending time with their kids. Watching television, more enjoyable than spending time with their kids. Shopping, more enjoyable than spending time with their kids. And why? Because they are getting something out of those activities. And perhaps for working moms and dads who are at work all day, you get home. What usually happens before or if you're not there before, what usually happens after dinner? During the school year, it's usually homework. Is that enjoyable for any parent? I would say absolutely not. Getting your kids bathed, getting them in bed, getting their rooms picked up or you know, having them do it, getting them you know, ready for the next day, making their lunch for the next day, whatever the evening activities are, 
are those things enjoyable? And my pushback would be for any of these parents, in this study it was moms, but my pushback would be what would have happened to your life if your parents and your mom didn't do these things and had not done those things for you? Do you think you would have grown up with the ability to have a family, to be able to care for yourself and for others? Do you think that you would have done as well in school, been as, as well as you could have been with hygiene, been taught how to clean your room, eat well, if it hadn't been for parents' involvement in those things? So that would be my first level of pushback. My second level of pushback would be simply this. Whenever a parent has children, whenever a person has children and they become a parent, one thing that ought to become crystal clear is that life is not all about you. And sometimes doing hard things that are not enjoyable and will not benefit you directly, you are doing them for the benefit of someone else. And what we have in a relatively short amount of time with children that are in our care is the ability to impact the world in a positive way. If you sit at home in the evening with no children and you watch TV and you don't bother anybody and you're not on social media and you go to work, you punch in, you punch out, and you go home and every day is the same, chances are your impact on society is fairly low. But the moment that you have children, now you ramp up your ability to impact society by a million. Because if you raise that child to be respectful, then they're going to be a benefit when they go to school. If you raise that child to be kind to others, to be considerate, if you raise that child to take care of themselves and to take care of their belongings, then they're going to be a benefit to others at school and to the workplace when they get older. See, I'm not even talking spiritually. I'm just talking practically in society. So by doing those less than desirable tasks that come along with having children, part of that is life is not all about you. And if you have children, then you give up the right to make life all about you. You have responsibility. You have a calling on your life as a parent, not just to bring children into the world, but to bring them up in the world. To train up a child in the way they should go, as the Bible says in the book of Proverbs. Now, if you want life to be all about you, don't have kids. If you want to be you know, self-centered and, and do what you want to do, go where you want to go, be who you want to be, all of that stuff, then don't have children. But by having children, you have an opportunity to not only make an impact in society for the good, but you also have an opportunity to train your children to have a, a wonderful impact on society. But what about spiritually? See, spiritually, as a Christian, your life's not all about you anyway. And so, in truth, if these moms are Christians, then spending time with their kids on a fun scale may not be very high because it's not that fun to help with math homework and English papers and history reports and science projects. That's not that much fun. Now, you can make it fun, but in and of itself may not be a hoot and a half, okay? But as a Christian, your life is not all about you, and you live to serve others the way that God, through Christ, has served you. 
And so instantly, the rules change. Instantly, it's a different game. As a Christian parent, you have the opportunity to invest spiritually in your children so that they can go and make a spiritual investment in the lost world. They can go to school as missionaries. They can go and, and grow as people and have a wonderful testimony for Christ that brings hundreds of people to the Lord. You can train them up in, cert, in a certain way to be a blessing in your church, for them to be a blessing at school, for them to be a blessing in the neighborhood with other children. I'll give you an example, and I'm certainly not tooting my own horn because as a parent, I'm not perfect, never met a perfect parent. But when our kids were younger, my daughter Anna went to vacation Bible school one year. And of course, we're all involved. I'm the pastor of the church. You know, we're all there. And she knows all the songs. She knows all of the motions. She, you know, she's all in to the Bible studies and the missions and all of that stuff. She's got it all down. She decides one week during the summer, probably two or three weeks after vacation Bible school has ended at church, that in her room, she's going to set up vacation Bible school for girls in our neighborhood. And my daughter, at the age of about seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there, she did crafts, she did snacks, they sang the song, the songs, they did the motions, they did a Bible study. All of that in her room, led by her. I didn't ask her to do that. But she came up with that idea and asked me as a, as a small child, Dad, would it be okay if I did that? Now, the only issue I had was the snacks. You know, to get your own snacks. No, I'm kidding. I mean, I didn't have a problem with it at all. I thought it was beautiful. And I'm telling you as a Christian parent, the stuff that is required of you may not be high on the fun scale. But what an opportunity that we have. And there's a book written in connection with this article, you know, basically teaching you to find happiness someplace else. That, you know, happiness is somehow complicated. Happiness is not complicated. Happiness is directly tied to our ability to go beyond ourselves, And when you begin to see the impact that you're making in your children and other people at work, other people at school, other people in your neighborhood, people you come in contact with, look, it is absolutely free to be a decent human being. It won't cost you a thing to be kind to other people. And just think, if you would teach your children to go to school, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be forgiving, to be patient with other kids. Think of what a different school system, every school system in America would be if all parents would actually invest in their children. Is it fun to teach your kids lessons and to train them to be the people that they should be? Is it as fun as disconnecting and watching a silly sitcom? Probably not. But is it more impactful? Absolutely it is. And it's far more Christ-honoring to do that than it is to sit on our behinds and just vegetate. Well, speaking of vegetating and speaking of how to invest in our children, I found a shocking article dealing with food. And, you know, me, like a lot of people, you know, I love good-tasting food. And, you know, I don't know anybody who eats food just, just to eat it. You know, there are certain things that you like and you really enjoy eating those. Obviously, there are certain things that you eat that you may not enjoy as much. And I live with some of those people. Chocolate is king. 
Peanut butter's right behind it. You know, it goes back to that Reese's peanut butter cup thing. But here's the deal. There are certain foods that we enjoy, and there are consequences to eating food that we enjoy. And sometimes if that food is not good for us, the consequence is we're not healthy. I'm not talking necessarily about weight because there are some very thin people that have very high cholesterol and it's because of what they eat and they have to watch what they eat to monitor their cholesterol, not to lose weight, but to, for their body to process food correctly. And so people have consequences. So there are all these diets that are out there have been for years Eat this, don't eat that, eat this way. I mean, you could name, probably off the top of your head, you could name five or six different diets that are out there that people have tried that, you know, if you're going to lose weight, this is the way to do it, blah, blah, blah. I read this shocking article. Shocking. So glad I was sitting down when I read it. (laughs) Because it said this, quote, fad Diets are out. It's your lifestyle habits that matter. Duh. That's always been the case. That's not brand new information, but that was written in November of 2021. As if to say, if you eat a balanced diet, if you monitor the amount of red meat that you eat, if you limit sugar and fat, you know, heavy saturated fats and a lot of salt. And if you eat vegetables and whole grains and whole foods, guess what? Your body's going to be better off. Duh. One of the ways, the first time that I went to China, one of the ways that Chinese people know that Americans are happy is because of how fat we are. They associate big bellies with having a lot of money and happiness. Boy, would they be surprised if they came over to America. Would they be pleasantly shocked to see all of the wealth, all of the happiness with those of us that struggle with our weight. But here's the thing, talking about spending time with your kids, talking about truth, talking about an impact that spiritual things have in your life and in in your family, here's the truth of it. Becoming more like Christ and having a deeper walk with the Lord where we know him better and we're in his word, and we exhibit the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, and we have Christ-likeness in our life, to get to that point involves spiritual disciplines. As simple as prayer, Bible study, serving. I mean, we're talking evangelism. We're talking about the basic building blocks of what it takes to be Christ-like. It takes some spiritual discipline. I cannot expect for God to produce all of this righteousness and holiness and spiritual fruit in my life if I am not disciplined to spend time with him, to spend time at his word, to spend time praying, to spend time serving other people, to spend time with my children. Look, I can't expect spiritual fruit in the lives of my children if I don't spend some time helping them to see the weeds, <laughs> to plant some seeds, and to you know, to occasionally water those seeds and, and, and do the things behind the scenes to invest in the lives of my children, I'm never going to see spiritual fruit. I can hope and pray that one day God will produce that fruit in them because they begin to have those spiritual disciplines and draw closer to him. But what an opportunity I have missed by not investing in my own children. But that starts by failing to invest in your own life. 
So there is no fad. There is no quick fix to spiritual healthiness. Just like there's no quick fix to physical healthiness, and even, by the way, and I am probably going to get in trouble for saying this with some of you, but even fad diets take some work. Even they take some discipline. I mean, I've seen from time to time some of the most ridiculous diets, like the Twinkie diet. I saw the Krispy Kreme donut diet. They all take work. They all take discipline. They all take some form of dedication to say, I'm going to do this. Now, this article is saying that the best way to be holy is not jump on a fad, but just treat your body well and eat balanced and and eat smart. But I'm translating that spiritually to say there are no quick fixes to being holy and to pursue righteousness and to have the heart and mind of Christ and to exhibit in your life the presence of God. That There's just no quick fixes to it. You've got to be spiritually disciplined and willing to do the hard thing. So where is your Bible? Do you access it regularly? Do you have some kind of a devotional plan where you have a certain time of the day where you are reading the Bible, meditating on it, really thinking through what is this passage saying? Do you have a devotional book that you turn to that gets you in the Word and really helps you to think? Do you have a set time of prayer for the day? Do you have multiple times of prayer throughout the day? Do you have time where you just have have one moment where you especially talk to God and just pour your heart out to him for 15, 20, 30 minutes. And then you have other periodic times of prayer throughout the day. Are you intentional at finding ways to serve other people at school, at work, at home, in the neighborhood? Or are you so self-obsessed that you don't see those? Would you rather watch a show that will make you laugh or read a scripture that will change your life? I think most people would say, if they're really being honest, they'd like to just disconnect from the world and just laugh their problems away. But you see, the Bible is medicine for the soul. It is beneficial to woundedness and brokenness and the only way to find victory and to be healed through those moments of brokenness is to turn to that truth and to let it be the healing that we need and so yeah while spending time with your kids may be some painful moments and unfun moments maybe spending time with God and praying and reading the Bible and serving others Are there some, quote-unquote, more enjoyable things that are just silly and fun and ridiculous and make you laugh? And I'm sure there are. I, I know that there are. But nothing is more valuable to your soul, to your heart, to your life, to your testimony, and to what you struggle with than those spiritual disciplines of spending time alone with God. No quick fixes to it. Well, finally, my last uh, article that I came across really dealt with a topic that I don't want to talk about. And it's not because it's uncomfortable. It's just annoying. And I felt this way and have felt this way for months now. And the only reason that it is uncomfortable, the only reason that it's frustrating, the only reason that I'm ready to move on from it is because I think we all are. And I'll just tell you the title of the article. The title of the article is, The Pandemic is Still Making Us Feel Terrible. And the, the kind of the subtext to it, the, the, the second title of the article, the first sentence of the article, I should say, really sums it up well. But before I read that, let me say this. Whether you have had or know someone who has had 
COVID-19. Whether or not that is true, we've all suffered in some way through the pandemic. Whether it is, you know, social distancing stuff and not able to do certain things, go on vacations, go to conferences, go to concerts, get out like we'd like to, have some freedom to do this or that, things being closed, you know, people not working, getting back to work like they should, uh, obviously losing loved ones, having sick, you know, sick time where we're quarantined, you know, all of that stuff, we all kind of suffered through months and months and months of that. But here is the interesting part of this article, and I don't want to get into much of this because it's, there's really, A, there's not much time left in my show, but two, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole with this subject. And when I read this next little sentence, you'll understand why. It says, and I quote, Turns out it's hard to adjust to a new normal when that new normal keeps changing. Boy, truer words have never been spoken. We all thought back in March of 2020 when the pandemic really became a, a greater issue than just pockets of it here and pockets of it there when life as we knew it began to shut down. We just kept holding out hope that one day we would get back to normal. Knowing full well that after month after month after month of pandemics, people closing, that we were scared to death that what we then knew as normal would never be normal again. And my goodness, has that ever become true? And when normal keeps changing... It's hard to grasp what normal really is. And this is why I go back to cancel culture, and this is why I go back to the first article that I spent so much time dealing with. The only way to ground your life and really give it an anchor and really give it a foundation, the only way to get through life regardless of what changes around you is to know for certain the one true and living God who never changes. Now, you might say, Randy, you sound like a preacher. And I am. But I also know this by personal experience. I know this in my family. I know this in, in my life. I know this uh, you know, in the ministry. And I know this in churches that I've been privileged to serve. The only way that in spite of foolishness, ridiculousness, changes, new normals, new expectations, cancel culture, whatever it is, mandates, whatever it is that you want to call it. The only way to go straight through all of those issues and problems and heartaches and ups and downs is to know that you are connected eternally to the one true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and are filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's it. And I really feel for, for people who would read this article and say, yeah, you're, you know, you're right. Soothe me, comfort me by telling me that normal is never happening again. Tell me some, give me some coping skills on how to get through this. Here, the, the only coping skill I can give you is the best one, and the only one is to turn to Jesus. Because he's the only one who will never change. Everything else around you, even before the, the coronavirus was ever known across different continents, your life was still changing. Maybe not in the way that it has over the last almost two years, but I can guarantee you this. If your life is headed in a direction that you don't want it to go, and if you feel like things are up and down and you feel like things are all over the place and changing constantly, I want to encourage you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in Him, 
And if you need help understanding, you email me, randy at columbiabaptist.com. You reach out to me and I will reach out back to you. And I will share with you how you can have a relationship with God through Christ. Thank you for joining me tonight.